so yeah, as a book, it helps with the contemplation of the sage because it gives you a lot of stoic examples, people to aspire to, anecdotes of people acting stoically or displaying stoic virtues. And then it gives you these philosophical case studies, I would say. And if you're somebody who likes philosophy more, if you understand the culture, the history, the biography of the person you're reading from, this is a great supplement to that. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. And in this conversation, Michael and I talk about Ryan Holiday and Stephen Hanselman's book, Lives of the Stoics, The Art of Living from Zeno to Marcus Aurelius. We focus on their accounts of the big three Roman Stoics, Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius. This is a great episode for getting a better sense of who these people were who wrote about many of the ideas we discuss. Before we completely jump into it, I've got a quick announcement. Michael and I are putting together a live course, a cohort-based course, called Stoicism Applied. It's going to be three weeks long later this year. And it's going to be grounded in Epictetus's topoi, his three topics, the disciplines of desire, judgment, and action. We're really excited about it. You'll get to interact with Michael and I live, of course. More importantly, perhaps you'll also be joined by other Stoics who are serious about walking the Stoic path. Without any guidance or community, it can be difficult to apply the Stoic lessons and I think that this three-week course, this three-week intensive will be an excellent way to get that social support and get that motivation. To learn more, go to maven.com slash stoa slash stoicism dash applied. Bit of a cumbersome URL. You can also find it in the description of this podcast, as well as a variety of other websites we have for stoa, stoameditation.com www.stoaletter.com. We have too many, too many websites. I hope you join Michael and I. If you're interested, uh, please get on our waiting list. We're going to be opening up enrollments soon, and we have a limited amount of seats. So get on the waiting list. We'll send you out an email when we open enrollments, which will be soon. All right, with that, let's get into the conversation. Welcome to Stoa Conversations. My name is Caleb Monteveros. And I'm Michael Tromble. And today we are going to be talking about Ryan Holiday's and Stephen Hanselman's Lives of the Stoics. We'll be doing a book review, a coverage of sorts. In this book, Ryan and Stephen go through many Stoics, the big names, some of the small names, if you may never have heard of before, but for purposes of our conversation. We're just going to focus on the themes they pull out from the big three Roman Stoics, Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius. Yeah, another book review. We've heard from people that they've enjoyed this this format of looking at books and discussing our thoughts on, on some Stoic literature. So let us know what you think of this one as well. And you know, I should say from the start, I enjoyed this quite a bit. I think it's really, really fun getting the kind of biographical background especially of those big three who I'm so familiar with their philosophy, was a really, really nice compliment. And I think Ryan and Stephen did a good job in presenting it in an accessible way that was, I would say, accurate, but also providing their own commentary at the same time or some, some perspective on it. So overall, really enjoyed this, really enjoyed this book. So excited to talk about it. Yeah, I would say this book is probably one of my favorites, if not my favorite book from Ryan Holiday. It came out 2020, and it's sort of in the tradition of some of these ancient moralists, ancient biographers, people like Plutarch, Diogenes Laertius, who cover the lives of you know famous men, famous philosophers, and do so not with the aim to sort of come up with some objective scientific account of their life, but with the explicit goal of thinking about these people as models or anti-models, you know, what sorts of lessons can we learn 
from their from their lives. So that's I think that's the same approach that's taken in this book to a variety of different stoics. You know, of course you get the big three, but you also get some nice chapters about many other characters from Greek and Roman history, from Cato the Younger, Helvidius Priscus, of course, the early Greek Stoics, and a few who, you know, Diogenes the Diplomat. Who's that? Might not be so clear <laughs> to you if you're coming into this green. So it's neat to get a, a range of different characters. Yeah, and I should also praise it as a, you know, it's just a, just a historical source. Like, it seemed to me well-researched. And I, even though I've been studying a lot of Stoics for a long time, I am not trained as a classicist. I'm trained as a philosopher. So sometimes I don't always know my history. And, you know, I've been reading about these guys for years. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. Or, oh, that's an interesting story. Or I hadn't, I hadn't heard that before. And I had that a couple, a couple times in Seneca. Well, Seneca in particular. So well worth it. As just, and all collected in one place too, right? If you get any Seneca book, you're going to have a little bit about his life at the start. But to have these all collected in one spot really, I think, makes a good resource. And we'll get into this as we talk about it a bit more. But I was struck by how valuable, you know, I, I, think, I think that there is a real tendency to look at people's biographical information as a way to either glorify their ideas or dismiss their ideas. As a philosopher, I'm not really a fan of either of those approaches. I don't really think, I think an asshole could have a good idea. And I think, a, you know, a good person could have a lot of bad ideas. And so I don't think somebody's stoicism is wrong because they acted in an unstoic way. But I do think when you look at the biographies of Seneca, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, you get a bunch of good philosophical case studies, kind of applied questions. You know, like is, is Seneca a hypocrite to have collected all of this wealth? Is, is Marcus Aurelius's actions as a father, what do those say about his stoicism or his relationship to it? And I think those are really interesting questions. I would never... I don't think I, I don't think I could read anything biographically that could cause me to dismiss something that I already enjoyed as a piece of philosophy, but I think that it can it can draw out these really interesting questions when you see someone who's written that philosophy interacting with the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting question how biography relates to how you should evaluate someone's ideas, and in some sense, of course, it's irrelevant for some some mathematical ideas are going to be true independent of the character of the person developing them at the same time you know if you look at something like life advice or practical advice should you pay attention to the life advice that someone who can't you know run their own life well manage their own life well is giving you maybe not and the stoics sort of fall in between in between those two cases sometimes it's very clearly philosophers are like the mathematical type where you know they're just making an argument you should evaluate the argument on its own merits but other times, you know, it is an interesting question that when does the psychology matter for evaluating someone's ideas? And I do think it matters sometimes, certainly. But yeah, maybe that's another another good conversation we could have. But we, before we go down that that rabbit hole too too far, <laughs> let's let's hop into Seneca. So we're going to be covering the big three, big three Roman Stoics. The first one, Seneca, born four BC, died sixty five AD. Seneca is well known for being the tutor to Nero, later the advisor, along with Nero's mother and another fellow, Burrus. It was a surmise that Seneca essentially ran the empire when Nero was much younger. But of course, as Nero got older, Seneca becomes someone who either becomes a complete you know, hypocrites, they don't apply their Stoic, you know, Seneca forgets his Stoic principles to become exceptionally wealthy, to justify some of Nero's misdeeds. That's one reading of Seneca, of course. The other reading is that to some extent he got over his head. He made a judgment that in order to improve the empire, you'd have to get his hands dirty and wasn't able to adequately manage what happened when Nero grew in his political power and paranoia. So, you know, he ends his life 
retiring from the court and is famously ordered to kill himself. Nero orders Seneca, his previous tutor, to kill himself. Yeah, so I guess to summarize that for people who aren't familiar or haven't read the book yet, the idea is Seneca is receives some notoriety at a young age, but leaves the public life, is basically called back in to tutor Nero, this young boy, either already emperor or at least set to be emperor very shortly. I suppose he was set to be emperor, but there's also the question of Claudius's son, younger son, Britannicus. Mm -hmm. So there was some complication there. Uh, so a high probability. Alive, yeah, but high probability he'd end up in either yeah. as emperor or co-emperor. And then you have this philosophical case study where one of the greatest minds in all of Stoicism, one of the greatest writers, both in terms of philosophical texts and in literary texts, he wrote a number of very famous plays as well, is involved in political life, but involved in a way that at worst is an, he's an enabler or a hypocrite, you know, he doesn't really stand up to Nero. He doesn't really put his foot down. And he amasses this incredible wealth and becomes very successful politically without really taking the responsibility on himself because Nero becomes this kind of face of the, of the empire in a bad way. And then I guess at the best, he's somebody who's attempting, a philosophical mentor who's attempting to moderate Nero over time, fails to do so, but still attempts to kind of course correct is unsuccessful in this and then ends up ends up you know suffering the same fate of many other people at the hands of Nero. So it's this kind of interesting question I think of for me I for me I take two two questions from this life. Interested what you think Caleb. One is this question of kind of moderation versus extremism. You know, should should Seneca have attempted to assassinate Nero? Should Seneca have actually partnered more proactively with people who were attempting to assassinate Nero? Should he have put his foot down harder at an earlier age when you realized there were some kind of malevolent tendencies? You know, was Seneca too moderate if we want to give him the moderate reading? And then the other reading is, well, what is, is this kind of life appropriate for a Stoic at all, one where you're next to evil? And you're constantly in the relationship of evil. And then does Stoic become, does Stoicism become kind of an excuse for actually what a lack of bravery, a lack of courage, a lack of action, or something along these lines, a lack of moderation? I think it's a really interesting philosophical case study. What did you think about his life? Yeah, those are two very important questions. Well, I would say that, as you say, you've sort of got these two readings of Seneca, the sage who's tutoring Nero in the model of Aristotle tutoring Alexander, Alexander the Great, and doing his best to, once he essentially learns that Nero, either of his own, you know, perhaps through a mix of his family inheritance and personal vice, is not going to be very receptive to his lessons. Seneca learns that, well, maybe he'll do damage control to the best, best that he can. And he's just, if he, if he wasn't there, probably there would be someone else. <laughs> they're doing worse by the empire, by the Roman people and their subjects. So there's that sort of line. And then, of course, you also have the other line where Seneca is merely an opportunist who just does not have the conviction, except perhaps towards the very end of his life, to stand up for what he believes, unlike uh, other Stoics. There was the Stoic opposition. Epictetus talks about a number of figures from this time. Um, and these, their lives, like the lives of Thersia, uh, Agrippinus, are also covered in this book. But Seneca does not join the Stoic uh, opposition, certainly not explicitly during his life. I, I should shout out, there's an excellent book by a, fellow, a classicist named James Rom called Dying Every Day. And he really gets into the debate over Seneca's character, what was driving him to the extent, extent that we can. One way to come up this question that this question around moderation versus extremism, or you could think of it as, you know, to what extent should you go along with the status quo versus aim for something much better, but pay both personal and social risks, perhaps, of seeking to overthrow an emperor? This this issue of moderation versus extremism. 
this the t- chapter on Seneca is titled Seneca the Striver. And I think that does get at this striving, a real feature of Seneca, and a feature that, if you want to take the Aristotelian spin on it, has both positive and negative aspects. And if you have this sense of striving, the sense of ambition, it's very important to always aim that ambition at the right thing. Otherwise, too much ambition is going to cause serious problems for yourself and for others. Just perhaps as too little ambition will do the same. So I, I like that. I like that framing a lot on Seneca's life. That's this idea that he is a striver. He's seeking to rise in the Senate. Then when he's exiled by Claudius, he does all he can to get back. And then once he is back, he's put in a powerful position where he can do a lot of good, get a lot of personal gain, and to, and then he basically plays plays that out where it it needs to go. So, you know, I suppose that's not. If there's a theme there, it's a theme about the dangers of striving, in addition to some of its benefits. You know, Seneca's ambition is a sort of thing that enables him to be both an excellent statesman, but also an excellent orator in general, excellent philosopher, a right place that survived till this day. I mean, he certainly is plausibly one of the most talented Stoics uh, that, that have existed, in, at least existed in, in Rome. What do you think? Yeah, could Epictetus do this? And then he writes a play. He's like, Epictetus could never. <laughs> I'm way more talented. Yeah, no, he's like he's a he's a very historically important person and excellent. Like we think of I think of polymaths often in terms of wow, this person can do kind of disparate things, like they can they're really excellent at math and they're excellent at writing or something. And this is almost like a polymath, but all within, I don't know, these these different spheres of kind of the intellect, the oratory, the fiction or the plays and the philosophical writing. I don't know. I don't know the lesson here, or I don't know if I know enough to take a position. I do think we want to be cautious to not have stoicism. I mean, I I, I guess the question that I would have for Seneca is, is say, okay, well, you know, he wrote all these amazing things. So where did he act well? When did he act justly? Where was his forgiveness of somebody who wouldn't have been forgiven? Like, I guess where was... We get that we get that in Marcus Aurelius's life. We get those examples. Maybe we lost them in Seneca's life. We don't have them in these chapters. But I think I think his writing gets it so right. I I would just I don't know if I have enough to say a comment about the person, unless you have some evidence. One thing that's interesting though is that what I got from this book is that he wrote he wrote his ethical letters. You know the letters from a Stoic. Some people call them towards the end of his life. So there's also something to be said here through the transformation of a person. I think it's very patronizing or trivializing to think that Seneca would be the same person at 30 that he was at 65. So there's perhaps this view of him reflecting on his life at 60, writing these letters, these letters on ethics and saying, okay, well, you know, my opinion on this has changed a bit since I was first in the court, right? And maybe there's this transformation from kind of intellectual exercise the stoicism to actual practice. But I, I would love to see some evidence of kind of acting on these principles before I give the thumbs up. Yeah, I think I think it's hard. Seneca's always so complicated. It's he's probably just the sort of character who unlike some of these other characters chronicled, unlike some of the other Stoics, it's much harder to say, you know, Seneca's someone who ultimately was approaching sagehood or in some yeah. senses he serves both as a positive role model but also an anti-model and i think that's the sort of thing that attracts so many people to him whereas you know at both epictetus and marcus aurelius for many i think many people are you know they're a level up where seneca he's someone who if you want to think, use a martial arts analogy, he's someone who, you know, he's his analogy might not work so well, but he might have a, a, <laughs> he's a notch above you, or something like this. But 
Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, they're, they're going to be a, another belt or two ahead of him still. So these are certainly more approachable. Maybe perhaps one reason why the analogy doesn't work so well, though, is that Seneca has high variance, right? He does some truly excellent yeah. things, which excellent works. He did manage the empire well, most likely, when he was with Burris and Nero's mother, when Nero was sort of out of the scene. And that's, you know, that's always a good thing. But he also did things like write a letter to the Senate justifying the assassination of Nero's mother and certainly got his hands dirty and wasn't as principled as, you know, many other Stoics who he held out as models. People like Cato the Younger is a model for Seneca, but I don't think anyone could say that uh, Seneca came close to Cato the Younger's approach, where Cato's famously uh, principled. Uh, an enemy of Julius Caesar, and I think as the sort of character who you know sh- stood up against armed mobs and risked his life uh, to stand up for what he believed in. Where you know that's something that Seneca does at the very end. But Seneca tries to play it careful. He's very strategic. Maybe he thinks that's a better long-term strategy, but uh, maybe he's also just rationalizing. Yeah, we need a. We need an HBO series on Seneca. That's what I need. I need to see this play out Game of Thrones style to get the nuance here. But I like that idea of the high variance, high points, low points. I don't think he was lying in his philosophy. And in that case, it makes somebody who's flawed but striving. And there's something kind of admirable about that as well. You know, we can't all, the same way Epictetus says we can't all be Socrates, I think a lot of us often feel we can't be Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus. But maybe we can be Seneca's at least ethically, maybe not in terms of our talent or my talent at least, but in terms of that kind of trying to do right in some ways that sometimes turn out for the worst, you know? Right, right. Is there anything else you want to say on Seneca before we move on? Well, the other thing I wanted to comment on actually, was just like, I was just surprised by the amount of variation in his life, like the amount of extreme vacillation. We talked about that in terms of ethics, but it was like, you know, he's either the richest man possibly in the world or like in exile, you know, incredibly powerful politically, but also sickly. And so this kind of this, this, these, this movement between extremes and I, I got a real kick. I mean, I've heard this line so many times, but after reading his biography, I got a real kick out of this line of like, we suffer more in imagination than in reality. That's a Seneca line. And that I think of when I'm like sitting on line on the couch, looking at social media and getting anxious. And then I'm like, this is, in, this is more an imagination than reality. But I think it's funny that someone like Seneca, you know, in the court where people are killing each other, assassinating each other, poisoning, like he's trying, Nero tries to kill him with poison and he survives. Like, and this person's like, yeah, I am, I'm more anxious than I should be. And it's like, wow, that's surprising to me that that's that person. Someone like Seneca is having the same reflection because it seems like there's plenty to have anxiety about. Right, right, absolutely. I mean, he does face a exceptional amount of, adversity uh, that he needs to overcome. But I think to, for some evidence of that, just reading a passage, it was out of the frying pan and into the fire. In a span of less than two years, Seneca would lose his father when he was 29 years, uh, get married, and then lose his firstborn son. And then 20 days after burying his son, he would be banished from Rome by Claudius. Yeah. And that guy's like, I should stop stressing so much. That's impressive. Right. So that's, that's a, yeah, that is some, that is certainly an admirable thing about him. Well, let's move on to Epictetus then. So Epictetus, he's born in, yeah, I, no one else can see it, but Michael's doing a <laughs> fist pump. That's cool. This is what we're here for. <laughs> Epictetus, born in 50, he died in 135 AD. Uh, he was born to a slave woman. His name literally means acquired. And he is eventually owned by a man who is a part of Nero's courts, a man who is a former slave himself, Epaphroditus. So Epaphroditus goes on to actually serve alongside Seneca. Seneca would have known Epaphroditus, but we can't really say whether Seneca and Epictetus bumped into each other, though it's possible. As far as we know, it did not occur. At least it was not remarked on by either philosopher and 
their works or the notes others took of their lectures. I was thinking, we need that HBO show. We need that scene where Seneca and Epictetus bump into each other and lock eyes. The So, yeah, so to follow along that, for those, I, probably most people know, but for those that don't know, he gained, he was studying philosophy as a slave under Masonius Rufus, another famous Stoic, gained his freedom, gained enough notoriety as a, as a philosopher that when philosophers were banished from Rome, he was included in that. And then I think this happened and he returned, it was reversed. He returned. It happened again. He left again, went to Greece, opened up a school of Stoic philosophy. And that's where we have Epictetus's discourses. There are notes that a student of Epictetus wrote when Epictetus was teaching this, teaching at his school of philosophy in Greece. Another thing is that Epictetus was disabled, at least in one reading, like he had, a, he had a, quite, a, quite a bad limp. Well, at least in one story, it was cut because of a beating from his master, although we don't know that for sure. I think Epictetus, the, the key theme that Ryan Holiday pulls on here and Stephen pull on is this idea of freedom. So this idea of wrestling with the concept of freedom, that's something that we haven't talked about a lot, but is a central part of Epictetus's philosophy, is this idea of what it means to be free. He often calls his students a slave. So this contrast between, well, there's kind of political slavery, but then there's physical slavery, not, not, not a non-trivial thing, but then there is this more important kind of philosophical slavery to your desires or your fears or your false beliefs or your anxieties. And somebody thinks just because Epictetus remarks, you know, just because you're, you know, fairly well-to-do and you're not a political slave or a social slave doesn't mean you're not a slave in another sense, in a more concerning sense. And I think that's quite an admirable part of Epictetus's story. It's something that I, it's something that I admire about him is that perspective. There's something to be said for kind of a firsthand account and that kind of, when we talk about being a notch above, that capacity to go through those things and not have resentment, rather turn the lessons you learned in slavery into A, stoic mastery, and then B, kind of fuel to the fire to train others in Stoicism is something I really, really admire about Epictetus and I think is really cool about him. But other than that, there's, there's so little about Epictetus's life. I have this as, an, as a negative point, but I, I don't think the authors did a bad job here. I just think we know so little about Epictetus's life that it's hard to really pull out the same kind of political intrigue we got from Seneca. Instead, we're left with these beats of, he used to be a slave, became a philosopher, that slavery informed his approach to philosophy. And I think that's true and insightful. I always wish we had a bit more, but we just don't. So the book ends up, the chapter on Epictetus ends up, I think, focusing a lot on his philosophy in the, in the later half, understandably. Right, right. Yeah. I think it's always worth remembering that we have Epictetus's works because of Arian. Arian was a student of Epictetus who wrote down and summarized Epictetus's lectures and we don't even have all of those so we have yeah i think we have we have four books from, from the discourses but they're supposed to be eight right yeah they're supposed to be eight and this is a really fun one we we know what is the oldest version of of epictetus like so you might ask this question well what's the so what would happen is you'd have this this book arian wrote and then it would get copied a bunch of times and we know where the oldest existing copy is, which is from like now 900 AD or something. It's, it's, it's not from Epictetus's time. And we know it's the oldest existing copy because every copy since this one is missing the same portion of text. And the portion of text that's missing from this original one in, or the oldest one in Oxford has wine spilt over it. So some monk spilled their wine on the Epictetus they were copying. And then that copy was the one that got copied. And so we don't have that portion because nobody was able to copy and there was blank ever since. And I think it just like, it shows how exciting it is, or I guess lucky it is that we have anything at all. We think, oh, we have four of eight, but the four we have, you know, somebody spilled something on part of that four and we don't have that anymore. So we're so, so lucky to have preserved it because it comes back to one single copy in the middle ages. And that was the same thing I was thinking about Seneca, which is Man, what a resource this his writings is, and how lucky we are that he decided to, you know, on in retirement to write this. 
He could have just not written it. He could have just gone hunting or swimming or done something else. And you know how blessed we are to have that. Or that Arian was like, this is some good stuff. I'm going to write this down. That's one thing I feel reading this book is like how lucky we are to have that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, yeah, that's a great point. And I think a lot of these historical works that Holiday and Hanselman rely on, there really aren't that many of those. It's the sort of thing where you, if you're a serious classicist, you literally could read everything we have on ancient Rome, the primary texts within a lifetime, which, you know, if you think about some other country, think about doing that for the States, that's probably not feasible, at least not as, not as feasible. I think, and I, I don't know much about this, so I could be wrong. I think maybe we could read all the primary texts that we've considered important. I, I, I could be wrong on this, but I know, I knew, I did know someone in university and their thing was they were like translating stuff that nobody had ever translated before. But I think mostly because it was like really boring stuff. Like, I think we might have like, you know, like grocery lists and like, you know, I don't know, correspondence between two normal people or something like this. So maybe there's like a lot of old stuff, a lot, a lot of like uninteresting stuff, but like in terms of reading, and again, I could be wrong here, but certainly when you, when you think of these big names like Cicero, Seneca, and, and you know, Julius Caesar and their writings, certainly you could do that pretty easily. But I think, there's a, I think there is a lot of boring Latin stuff. I don't know if that counts. No, yeah, that's right. I think in terms of you know, the, the histories, the letters oh, yes, uh, totally. from major figures, you could read all of those. But in terms of the accounting or some of these other things, I'm not so sure if you'd be able well, to. You, if you really loved accounting. That. Yeah. So just coming back to one theme here that you mentioned is the chapter is entitled Epictetus, The Free. And you could sort of contrast that with Seneca's story. I'll just read a passage here. It must have also been revealing for Epictetus to watch Epaphroditus, this man who had incredible power over him, contorting himself to remain on Nero's good side, down to flattering even the man's cobbler in hope of winning favor. So here there's this reality that uh, Paphroditus legally owns this, these other human beings, holds these other human beings as property, but must, because of his ambition, appease this more powerful person and act obsequious uh, before then. And, you know, as, as Holiday and Hanselman note, that must have brought out some insights Epictetus where he questioned whether Epaphroditus was really free, given the fact that his desires yeah. would lead him to act in such a really, you know, if you look at it objectively, demeaning way. Yeah, there's this point here about how like the desire treadmill just like really never ends, right? This is a personal story, but I remember spending time with a friend of mine and we, we met some of their family friends and they were, they were quite wealthy the wealthiest people I had met or spent time with up until that point in my life, we met them traveling and, you know, they were traveling they have both really good jobs, both two wealthy people. And they spent a significant portion of the dinner talking about their friends who had a couple full-time staff at their estate, like full-time, full-time maid, housekeeper, groundskeeper, and talking about how nice this other person's house was. And I remember just sitting there being like, you're the, wealthiest people I've ever spent had had dinner with and you're spending this dinner talking about your friend who has more money than you and how kind of jealous you are of their capacity to have you know a groundskeeper and a maid and things like this and I I was just this like man it just never ends you know like it never the desire cannot be satiated presumably the desire would be satiated when you're emperor but then you look at someone like Nero and it's like well clearly not right it just doesn't end and so I think that is would be yeah, must have been a very humbling experience for Epictetus or a very insightful experience in Epictetus and to say, well, you know, I've, I've, I'm lacking something here. I'm lacking a certain kind of freedom, but, you know, you certainly don't get it that way. That's certainly not the way it is achieved. And I think that's really insightful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a connection here where stoicism in general is 
an egalitarian philosophy. It's a philosophy that fundamentally says anyone, any rational person can be happy. And a lot of these advantages people have over others are preferred indifference, right? They're things that are preferable. In general, it's better to be wealthy, better to be healthy, better to have a good reputation than not. But it's not what ultimately matters. And perhaps, you know, one insight from Epictetus, but Seneca also has a number of lines about this as well, is that these preferred indifference are not always all that. And they often come with costs, serious costs, not just in terms of, you know, desire inflation or the desire treadmill, but it's also the fact that, you know, Marcus Aurelius didn't initially want to become emperor, even though it has all these mm -hmm. powers associated with it. It, of course, has serious costs too. And there's a reading of, of Nero's life where he may have preferred to be a, you know, aristocratic artist rather than serve as emperor. And perhaps he would have been much happier with that option if he had not been pushed into the Probably. political track. Yeah. That's kind of sad to think of. Everyone would have been much happier if he just let yeah, Nero do what he wanted to do. <laughs> I was thinking of a Bruce Springsteen song. Bear with me, everybody listening. But this is Badlands, which is the poor man wants to be rich, rich man wants to be king, and the king's not satisfied until he rules everything. But I guess not even satisfied then would be the other point. But just that, that adaptation of desire stands true here. Yeah, so the point, but to, to summarize your point, Caleb, that you know we're not sitting here saying, well, everybody that has money is bad. Seneca is bad for having money. Epictetus, Epictetus is good because he was a slave or anything like this. We're saying that when you contort your life in pursuit of a preferred indifferent, when you have extreme anxiety around staying in Nero's good favor, so and which probably means even doing some pretty bad things to stay in that good favor. I mean, when you've got something twisted, right? That's the, that's the stoic point. Mm -hmm. All right. You want to move on to Marcus, Marcus Aurelius? Let's do it. All right. So Marcus Aurelius, born 121 AD, died 180 AD, the philosopher king. So at a relatively early age, Marcus Aurelius was adopted by Hadrian and set in line to become emperor. Unlike Nero, Nero was also, you know, given the fast track into political power, but unlike Nero, Marcus Aurelius had what more time before he took the throne. I think he officially took the throne when he was 40 or so, and he also had the ability to watch a number of models and see how they interact with the power. So first there was Hadrian and then his adopted father, Antoninus Pius, I should say, who gets a number of mentions in Marcus Aurelius's meditations. And the very first book of the meditations, Marcus Aurelius lists out who he's grateful for, what he's learned from others, and has several really love, uh, thoughtful things to say about Antoninus Pius, who you sort of get the sense that this is a fellow who is exceptionally competent humble, good at interacting with a number of different people, and it's almost your almost boring for an emperor, which is hmm. he's pretty good at his job and doesn't risk the empire for his own personal gain or anything of that sort. And you know, manages to die in his bed, which is unusual for many emperors. So that's, I think that sets him apart is he has these models, some, some good ones, some anti-models, you know, there's some good things about Hadrian, but Hadrian also ends his life, uh, somewhat paranoid. He is interested in philosophy, perhaps more in the sense of a dilettante, may not be that serious in his, his studies, you know, interested in philosophy in the sense that he's, a, some people are interested in fashion, but Marcus Aurelius finds himself the emperor of Rome. And that is not an easy task for him by any means. You know, several historians mentioned that he, given his character, you ought to have better luck, but he faces a pandemic, a plague that kills off an exceptionally high number of Romans, invasions at the front of the empire from different Germanic tribes, 
a coup from one of his best generals. It's the sort of thing where you know, you know if you are emperor, the things never never end, and they're all high stakes things that involve the lives of you know millions of people. So you know one can get a sense about why perhaps Marcus would have preferred to be the philosopher rather than the philosopher king. Yeah, and the other part of this is is just that he does a good job of it. I think that was the that was kind of my general takeaway is that you know despite having these hard things. You know, he's not just a person who liked Stoic philosophy and also happened to be emperor, and that's cool. He was an emperor very Stoically, and he acted very well. So you, you mentioned the coup attempt by the friend who, his friend who was a general. Marcus Aurelius forgave them instead of, you know, making an example of them in whatever way you might do at that time, which I'm sure would be quite painful and gory in public, and took that as an opportunity to display forgiveness. There was another anecdote about how they required some money for an invasion to, to fund the army and to fund the state. And they actually like brought out into the market a lot of the, the pieces of, I guess, the political estate, whether these are like banners and flags and furniture or something along these lines. And they sold them at fair prices. And then at the end of the war, they bought them back at fair prices and even said, look, if you don't want to give them back, you don't have to. We can't, we can't take them from you, which, you know, is something I'm pretty sure many governments today might would would not like even be up to that standard, right? In a time of war, so that, that's really really impressive. All the while, you know, and he's a person unlike Seneca or even Epictetus, whose meditations were written for himself, just like a, a private journal. So it's not for an audience. You know, Seneca's letters are for someone else, but they're meant to be publicly consumed. It's just like kind of a plot device. This was for himself. So, you know, there's no, there is no debate about his internal feelings. Like, like somebody having your literal journal, right? Like it's very private, perhaps even more private in terms of the concerns than, you know, you would talk with other people. And I think in that you, you get this really conception of a, of a, a really great person. And I think, I think for me, the biography of Marcus Aurelius was the most valuable for me because he writes so opaquely his journal is so vague and it's so personal i guess that's it's very personal it's very vague and so when you learn about the person it has actually made it's made me much more interested to go back and reread the meditations again with a better understanding of kind of the 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 person that he was historically because it provides some insights into these you know what might be going through his mind in these vague comments or these these vague references right so I thought that was pretty cool. I thought that I thought that a biography of Marcus Aurelius was more valuable for understanding his philosophy than in the other two cases. Yeah, that's interesting because Seneca, well, Seneca has so much stuff written. So I think his knowing his biography is interesting when it comes to pieces on anger, on clemency. You know, you learn that on clemency yeah. is for Nero. That's written for Nero. But at the end, and you know, at the end of his life, he has the the letters, the moral letters to Lucilius, and some of those. They don't exactly touch on Seneca's life. They approach perhaps reflections at time of court at Seneca's time at Nero's court, but they never dive dive into it in the way in the way you want to. But and then with the meditations, it's always Marcus Aurelius focused on how can he be more stoic, how can he remind himself of these stoic principles, and doing so while he's at some headquarters, you know, in between the next strategic session perhaps for how to manage these invading tribes or some other matter of, of state. Yeah, what did, what did you think? What were the kind of philosophical themes you pulled from Marcus's biography? Well, like, like so many other figures at this time, Marcus Aurelius faced so much adversity, so much tragedy. He loses eight children you know, only five of his children make it into adulthood. And the other thing that always sticks out to me when reading about Marcus Aurelius' life is that he was, it seems like he came into the world with a good character, at least the potential to be a good character in the way that other people did not. You know, you have these anecdotes about him being a serious child, a studious child, but at the same time, he was observant. He took the time to 
learn about what was going around him, look at how the people who surrounded him were living and adapted his own life philosophy accordingly. So I think both Hanselman and Holiday have this line about, you know, in studying Marcus's life, there's this impression that he was somehow different, made of a special stock that made his many difficult decisions easier. The common perception of Stoicism only compounds this, that somehow the Stoics were beyond pain, beyond material desire, beyond bodily desires. But they go on to say that this take is too fast and it underrates how much work, how much effort Marcus Aurelius put into shaping himself. And I would also add how much of you know his environment mattered and how he was able to reflect on the good and bad examples that surrounded him, but also how he was shaped by his mother, his tutor, his adoptive father in a positive way. And it's not, you know, I think it is something to the thought that he came into the world with some dispositions that you know, were likely advantageous to him being a virtuous person, a good emperor. He and Nero almost certainly have a different biological makeup or perhaps certainly different early childhood experiences, whatever it is. But nonetheless, there is always this picture of self-improvement and others improving him as well. That's apparent when you read the meditations. You know, he's exceptionally strict with himself, always focused on how he can be more stoic and not on how the people surrounding him can be more stoic. Yeah, that kind of self-focus is great. I mean, interesting question there about nature versus nurture, right? And connecting back to Seneca's role, like if it is nature, was Seneca's nurture attempt futile? Or what did Seneca make Nero better than he would have been without Seneca present? That's another one. The thing that I liked about Marcus's biography too was this emphasis on doing good things instead of just abstaining from bad things. Like there can be this view where everybody seems really great in relation to Nero. And it's like, well, you just weren't a Nero and you're already like a pretty good, you know, you just weren't a terrible person. And you're already pretty good. But, you know, those examples I gave about forgiving the, the general of the uh, Q, uh, coup and then, uh, you know, treating citizens well during wartime. I think those were good examples. Another two things that come out. Well, one, I just thought this nature versus nurture debate with then Marcus Aurelius's son, Commodus, who was famously not a very good emperor. This is, you know, gladiator, Joaquin Phoenix and that. So there's there's something interesting there. And, you know, what did what role did Marcus Aurelius pay, play as a father and how important was that role? That's always an interesting question. And then the other thing that Ryan and Stephen are smart to point out is that you know, you can be as stoic as you want. You're still, to a certain degree, a result of your cultural environment. And the Marcus had no attempt to, you know, abolish slavery as one example, which to us stands out as such a, probably one of the worst things you could do, along with maybe something like torture or, you know, murder. And there was no kind of there was not a kind of philosophical dis- discourse around this. So there's this interesting thing, too, of even good people. Obviously, a great person, I think, if Marcus was born today, would still be a great person. But kind of a, a cultural blind spot, too, is always interesting to see. Yeah, right, right. Well, we should do an episode on Gladiator. That would be really fun. But yeah, I think thinking about the case of how your environment shapes you, even excellent people are going to take advantage of the positive aspects of the their social world. They're going to be morally lucky in many senses, but also they will have many blind spots. And that's true for the ancients, and it's almost certainly true for us as well. But, you know, I think we should wrap up. So just some final, some final thoughts on this book. There are so many different lives covered. In it, maybe we'll do another episode on some of the other figures mentioned. As I said earlier, I think it is probably my favorite book from Holiday, from Ryan and Stephen. It's very focused. You get to cover a lot of different figures. It's even enjoyable if you've read some of these ancient histories or ancient biographies. So, yeah, I enjoy it. If you want to learn, get more figures 
to sort of train on as models, anti-models, it's a good place to go. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, this the, as a book, it helps with the contemplation of the sage because it gives you a lot of stoic examples, people to aspire to, anecdotes of people acting stoically or displaying stoic virtues. And then it gives you these philosophical case studies, I would say. And if you're somebody who likes philosophy more, if you understand the culture, the history, the biography of the person you're reading from, if you enjoy not just the ideas, but the the cultural context of which those ideas came from and the, hist- the history that developed them, this is a great supplement to that. And one thing that is in all of Ryan's books that I've read so far is this tendency to divide things into kind of short, digestible chapters. And I find sometimes that works for me with philosophy. Sometimes it doesn't. Obviously, the Stoics did that as well. Sometimes in the philosophy, it's like, I just like, keep going. I want to really dig into this. But with the lives, it works so well because it is the kind of thing we go, oh, I just want to learn about this person or I want to jump ahead to this person. So definitely gets a recommendation from me. I would agree. My, my favorite Ryan Holiday book that I've read so far and a fun spot to have a useful tool for your practice and theory as we talked about, but also just a good kind of resource to have on the bookshelf. Awesome. Thanks, Michael. Great. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to get two meditations from me on Stoic theory and practice a week, just two short emails on whatever I've been thinking about, as well as some of the best resources we found for practicing Stoicism, check out stoaletcher.com. It's completely free. You can sign up for it and then unsubscribe at any time as you wish. If you want to dive deeper still, search Stoa in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations.